Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Holy heartbeat! Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Excellent! With your host, Brad Allen. Well, isn't that extra special? Recorded live at Bay Area Studios. Join Brett each week as he interviews celebrities, influencers, authors, high-level entrepreneurs, and much more. At the open mic, no topic is off limits. Giddy up. And you never know who may stop by. Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. What's up, everybody? How are you doing? Excited to be here with you today. I have a fantastic episode for your ears. John Reap is coming on the show here. He's on the line. He is a comic. He has a podcast entitled Country-ish, and we talk about a lot of different things. It's a lot of fun. He was a great guy. He is one of the original winners of NBC's Last Comic Standing. We talk about that. We talk about joke writing, how to ensure a premise is yours and not somebody else's, and a million other things. I'm excited for you. Check it out. John Reap, welcome into the show, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I like being in your closet. Yeah, well, this is my <laughs> well, this is my house slash uh, studio, but yeah, you... <laughs> For folks listening, he can see behind me and all my clothes <laughs> hanging up. Um, this is the this is what a single dad uh, renting a tiny house looks like. Uh, so yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> but it's funny. Most people, some podcasters, do record in their closets. So no, it's really good for audio purposes. You know, they uh, I recorded a lot of voiceover auditions, and they always tell you, you know, if you're a, if you're not at home and you're on the road in a hotel room to, uh, you know, see if you can stuff yourself in a closet surrounded by pillows <laughs> and stuff. So I get it. Clothes yeah. are good absorbing for sound. It is. Yeah. Well, this, this is actually a really good space. Um, I was in a, now we're talking about <laughs> my living situation, but my friend who rents this out, she just finished it. So there's a loft up above and it's a nice little space uh, to have. But uh, where are you? Like what city and state are you in? I'm in the Bay Area near uh, San Jose, kind of that w- sort of area. Yeah. So got you. are you close to Modesto? Um, well, Modesto is the other direction towards Sacramento. So it's oh, right, going right, towards right. Southern California, but it's about a two and a half hour drive, actually. So, gotcha. yeah, yeah. Now, you've been out to the Bay Area before, right, to perform? I have, yeah. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to think of the club. Um, yeah, I forgot the name of it. There's one in San Francisco that I performed in. Was it Punchline long- or Cobbs? I think it was Punchline. One of them got, one of them burned like that. One of them had a kitchen fire and they had to reschedule. And then I did the other one later on. So I, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was nice. It was huge. Yeah, it was probably the punchline. That's a very popular club, a very big room that Dave Chappelle, whenever he comes to town, he likes to perform there. Well, there's Cobbs, which is kind of more of a, I don't like the word hipster place, but I guess that's kind of where you would cons- describe it as where people come and perform. It's, it's probably 250 people, but punchline is kind of... Nationally, yeah. no, that's okay. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I performed there, and it was great. Um, I lived in Los Angeles for 18 years, um, so I um, I would get up and down the West Coast from time to time, but not a whole lot in San Francisco. But I I love it up there. It's really pretty. Yeah, it's one of my favorite places to be. I, I really enjoy it. Now you've been doing comedy for a long time. I think I first 
found out about you when you won season five of Lost Comic Standing is when I was introduced to you. I mean, you've been doing comedy long before that, right? I mean, you've been doing comedy for quite a while. I, uh, yeah. So I, um, I basically started like 95, 96. Okay. And I, um, I quit my job in 1998. 1998 was the last time I had like a, like a real job, you know? Okay. I was working at a TV station and I had access to really good equipment like cameras and editing equipment and um, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff, audio and visual stuff. And anyway, I, uh, I recorded my set at a good nights comedy club in Raleigh, made a really cool tape. Like I went in when I was a feature act, I was doing like 30 minutes and it was a pretty good 30 minutes. And I, and I got these guys that worked at the TV station with me to come in just for some beers and as a favor, <laughs> okay. they came in and recorded my, I had a three camera half hour special that I did myself for no money. I was using recycled VHS tapes to make copies. I was using high definition cameras, but they weren't mine. I just, you know, I just sort of borrowed them for the TV station and I uh, was able to make like 30 copies at one time at the TV station on these decks, you know, uh, VHS decks. And um, before I knew it, I had like 100 copies of my half hour special. I just sent them to every comedy club that I could get the mailing address for. And uh, over time, I started getting uh, offers here and there. I mean, not like great. It was for no money, the minimum wage. But to me, that was a big deal. Well, you were work. You were considered a working comic if you're getting paid, right? I mean, I know yeah. there's a differentiation there between some of your folks and friends. But sure. that's great, yeah. So in '98, all these offers came in, and I, I decided to just quit my job and see how long I could ride this thing out. And that was in October of 1998, and I've not had a real job since then. Unbelievable. Now, when you were on Last Comic Standing, was it a situation where they did a holding deal for you and they said, if you win, you know, we'll do this and get you a series perhaps and decide what we want to do? Or did they do like a cash prize? I'm trying to remember how it worked back then because I think it was a lot different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what brought you to mainstream, right? As far as like people putting the name to the face and going, oh, yeah, this is the guy. Yeah, so I had already done um, a lot of Dodge truck commercials. I had yeah. already done um, a, a sitcom with Rodney Carrington on ABC for two seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one knew the name John Reap. They just knew, like, you know, this goofy face. And so, <laughs> so Last Comic Standing, when I got on there, every time I'd go on stage, they'd have your name behind you in these big, bold letters. It just said John Reap. And so I think that's totally what helped people start to think of me as a comedian, even though I had already been doing it longer than anything else. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people like to go with the first thing they see you as is that's all you'll ever be to them. Right. And so for me, the first thing I did was a bunch of Dodge truck commercials. Okay. So that, that goes in people's heads. And then fast forward a couple of years, then they see me on last comic standing and they're like, whoa, what, what is this? And I didn't know that guy was a comedian. But um, yeah, it, uh, that, that show did sort of like help the career as in terms of stand-up comedy, definitely. Well, there's other folks, your peers, who have been on there who were already doing comedy before that. I think John Hepfren and I think maybe even Gabriel Iglesias, some of those guys who were on there. But I think what I find interesting about folks like yourself who are so successful and really a household name in comedy 
is that, you know, you, you were an overnight success that has taken over a couple decades to get where you were. So last comic standing might've been your visual presence to the public, but I mean, you were performing long before that, especially a real hustle (laughs) recording your own special and sending it out. And when you were doing that, were you getting a lot of positive responses to your performance and people were saying, we'll bring you on as an opener or as a feature comic, or were you just kind of, did you start out maybe just, hosting, you know, where they come out, tell a couple jokes, warm the audience up, and then bring out the feature. Yeah, so when I when I was coming up, um, you could sort of tour as a feature act. Okay. Um, the comedy clubs would book a headliner and a feature separately. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so now, it, but I think it's different nowadays. Nowadays, um, most comedy clubs uh, just use a local guy mm-hmm. uh, to open the show and maybe a and maybe a local feature, and if they don't, then the headliner will bring his own opener and or feature act. Okay. Um, but when I started, luckily for me, that wasn't the case. Comedy clubs were book booking just you know specifically feature acts, and so I didn't have to worry about buddying up with a headliner or anything like that. Um, I just tried to tried to be the the funniest. Uh, I could be in 30 minutes without offending the headliner, um, <laughs> okay. you know, and, and, and I could work separately like that. But um, yeah, it was a different time. Well, comedy's changed quite a bit, would you say, since you yeah. first started? I mean, now everything seems to have moved to social media, you know, and I've heard other comics talk about, you know, they have hired social media people almost to kind of do that part for them because is it true that it's really, let's say you're going on tour, let's say you're coming to San Francisco, does the club promoter put it upon you to promote the show and say, Hey, can you pump this on your social help to help sell tickets? I mean, how does, how does that work as far as the pressure on you and going, Oh crap, I have to sell, you know, three nights, two shows. I mean, what is that like for you? There, that has to be yeah, they, almost very they really stressful. Wanna, they, they really, um, it used to be, you know, before social media was so strong and present, that you would go in uh, and do the local radio. Okay. And that local radio would, if it was a big station and you did well, would help you sell tickets. Um, but now the radio stations, that's very, that's not as powerful as it used to be. And now it's all about right. social media. So they really, they really want the headliners definitely to, uh, to post uh, about their gigs and, and put ads up and promote as much as they can. And, and sometimes I've had clubs ask me if, if they could take over my, uh, my, my ad- admin role on a fan page just so they could do it better than what I know how to do. Oh, I didn't really? grow up knowing how to do this stuff. I mean, one of the positive things about this uh, pandemic is I'm really forcing myself to learn more about social media since I'm trapped in the house and I can't tour right now. <laughs> I've really been working hard on uh, open my social media game, uh, my YouTube, my Facebook, my Instagram. I'm on TikTok now. So, oh, I'm wow. Really, okay. <laughs> yeah. I've done it all, man. Well, that's your, I mean, that's your passion. That's your identity. And now I imagine with this pandemic, and I want to circle back around to some of the earlier days, but just out of curiosity, I mean, now that, because you had several dates booked and you were planning on touring, and now everything has just kind of come to a screeching halt. Do you think, 
I mean, what will comedy look like? Let's say in three months, if things are back to normal and you're able to go back to the clubs. I mean, how do you think this is going to affect all of that as far as like being able to come in and perform clubs, being able to sell out their seats? I mean, what is that going to be like? Or do you have any idea? I mean, I have a guess, you know, no one knows. Um, In North Carolina, we're not, we're not totally open yet. So we're like in phase one. Okay. Um, And so you can't go to a theater or a, or a comedy club or, you know, or a movie theater or anything like that until phase three. And I don't know when that's going to be. And I, I, and I imagine, you know, everyone's going to be a little, wary at first about going to a big theater where when you're sitting right next to each other. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, you know, the clubs are going to have to figure out how this is going to go. I, I got to figure out um, if it's going to be worth it to go sometimes because, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of comedians get paid based on how well they sell tickets. Oh, really? And if you can't sell out a theater because they're not allowed to sit next to each other. They got to space it out. Then that's going <laughs> to hurt. That's going to hurt the comedian's pocket as well. So it's going to be, everyone's going to have to learn to cooperate and figure it out and, and take a hit and just go look. And then just for the sake of comedy living, I will just go to a club and, and shoot for the best. And hopefully we, uh, I can make a little money and the club can make a middle, little money and we can all stay in business. Um, but to answer your question, I don't think anybody knows. Yeah, it's really strange. And I've just been listening to interviews you've been doing and other of your peers. And they all, it's interesting, like everybody is literally in the same boat in, in the sense of they just don't know what's going to happen. Like whether you're a theater comic or a club comic, it doesn't matter. Comedy as a whole, it seems, has just taken a massive, massive hit. And when you have all these events that are social, like you go to a comedy club, if you've listening and you've never been to a comedy club, I would be surprised, but you're literally like almost knee to knee with people depending on how the club is set up. So I can't even imagine. Most comedians like it packed like that because it just, uh, you know, the laughter. I mean, the best comedy clubs are the ones that are low ceilings and the people are right on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, because the laughter is just so explosive and loud and it, it just turns into an awesome, amazing experience. But I couldn't imagine. I mean, we've all done these gigs where you're in a big theater and it's just like one third filled and, you know, they're sporadically sat. It's sad mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't lead to, uh, an awesome time and it makes you look bad. So, <laughs> but you know, I think it's funny. I think a lot of comedians too. We'll, we'll use this, uh, you know, in their favor. Well, it's like, oh, well, how was your show this weekend? Well, you know, it wasn't sold out, <laughs> Corona. <laughs> so I think a lot of guys are going to use that as an, oh, as an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I can imagine all of the creatives at this point are like, okay, you know, how about that coronavirus? Too soon? Or, you know, kind of like something like that. But I, I get it. I've been to shows with pretty big name folks. and surprisingly, you know, the theater is not completely sold out. And it's just weird to me. I'm kind of like, I've always wondered how that part works. I guess it's just more of who's willing to come out of their house and do things, even when things are normal. Now, it's just, it's unbelievable. But I hope for you, my friend, it works out for the best. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah. 
I got lucky when I um, you know, I've had a pretty decent career, you know. Yeah, I would uh, say it's so always been kind of a kind of a roller coaster for me. Uh, some years are better than other, but I was in LA for 18 years, mm-hmm. and uh, I started missing my family in North Carolina. I grew up in North Carolina. I was like, well, I put a lot of time. I have a good career. I've got managers. I've got agents that will you know take meetings for me and. I don't know if I need to be in Los Angeles anymore because the, you know, the whole industry had changed to where, mm-hmm. you know, if I was doing a, an audition. I mean, I've gotten a lot of parts just uh, sending in uh, a video of myself uh, you know, from a hotel room and then not for an audition. You know, I, I didn't have to be there to get the part. I mean, I show up later when they, when they hire me, but I started thinking like, maybe I should move back to North Carolina and I got lucky. I sold my house at the, at the right time. I was able to make some money. I came back home and I haven't done anything with that money. So it's not like I'm, I was living paycheck to paycheck. I'm pretty comfortable. And during this whole thing, I've been really focused on working on my podcast in a weird way. Yeah. It's, it's boosted my, my uh, love and, and uh, passion for my podcast. And I, I've been putting more into that than anything. And I, and, and I would be okay if I if I never had to tour again and I could just do this from my hometown. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you really have achieved a certain level that I think a lot of comics want to get to where you can live comfortably and do your sh- create content outside of just performing. But it's easy for me to say because I've never stood in front of 300 people and told jokes for an hour, which you make look so effortless, especially with your new special on Amazon, right? It's on Amazon and you're just yeah, Amazon prime. Yeah. And your podcast is great. You have great guests and, and it's fantastic. And so you kind of have the ability to sort of outsource that creativeness in your show. Uh, country ish for those who haven't heard it, that link will be in the show notes, but you really, to me, have kind of achieved the dream, <laughs> at least from my perspective. Sure. I mean, I mean, to me, the whole goal, I didn't know how long this thing would last or, mm-hmm. or how it would turn out. Um, but I always kind of thought in the back of my head, if I, can, if I can make a living telling jokes and not have to go uh, to a real job every day, then that's a victory. Even if it's, even if it's like minimum wage, you know, if, even if it's just, small potatoes. I was, I was totally fine with that. You know, everything else was just icing on the cake. Um, and that's my whole goal is just to not have a real job. And so, yeah, I've heard that before from other comics that they've kind of gone (laughs) that route. Yeah. Uh, Now I obviously, I don't want to get into the numbers. That's none of my business, but I'm curious. I've heard some comics go, well, I kind of decided this is what a median salary would be for the average American and what it would take to survive. Was that kind of your approach when you first started out of, was to make a certain amount and go, okay, I can live on this comfortably. Or was that kind of your, does that question yeah. make sense? Like, did you kind of look at it from that? Cause I've heard other comics like yourself go, this is kind of how I decided to do it. Like an entrepreneurial sort of mindset. Sure. I well, look, I mean, I didn't even think that far ahead. I was young and stupid. And <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, really, uh, this is all crazy. Like when I moved to, so I quit my job in 98 to do this full time. I didn't know how long it would last. I didn't know what was going on, but I had a credit card. I had a couple of credit cards and I'm like, you know what? I'll just live off these credit cards for a while. 
hopefully I'll make some money doing this stand-up thing and, <laughs> and I'll give myself a couple of years. And um, slowly it started improving. I could tell there was momentum. It was working. People sure, were liking sure. it and I was getting more jobs. Um, so I just kept at it. And then uh, when I moved to Los Angeles in 2000, I had, I had just gotten invited to the Montreal Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. I okay. did well there. And um, I thought, well, let me go give L.A. a try. I moved to L.A. Um, and I went bankrupt. Like I didn't have any more money because I couldn't do the road as much. And because I was in California, I was kind of starting over. I had my little Southeast region thing that I was doing. Then when mm -hmm. I went to California, I'm like, Ugh, you know, there's not as many gigs um, for me because I was new to that area. Sure, sure. So I was like, well, I had to go. I had to file for bankruptcy. So I just, I, I filed chapter 13 and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I didn't have a, a real plan. But then all of a sudden I got, a, I got lucky and I got a college agent and the college agent uh, submitted me to NACA, which is the National Association for Campus Activities. Right. College I, tours. I found, yeah. I did a lot of costs. So I found an audience there. And then luckily that got me out of debt because, you know, if you're a comedian who doesn't have any kind of credits, you can still do decent at colleges. You know, you, you might get like anywhere from $800 to $2,000 for one show at a college. And, and they would, they would line you up a whole tour. You, you might do like 20 in two yeah. months. <laughs> and that, that would be fine for me. I, I, I was low maintenance. I didn't need a whole lot of money. Um, so I thought, well, I could do that for a while. And uh, then the colleges led to getting a commercial agent and the commercial agent got me the Dodge commercials and things just started going like this. But I do remember the, one of the deals I made with myself was when I got to LA, I told myself if I'm in LA for two years and I'm not on television in some capacity, I'm going to say, well, I tried, I'm going to move back home to North Carolina mm -hmm. and just focus on being a really good road comedian from the South and maybe work in the radio or do something like that. Um, but luckily uh, that didn't happen. I, I, I managed to get on TV within two years and I just, I just kept renegotiating with myself what the terms are. Wow. And then 18 years later, here we are, you know, that sounds like an episode out of the TV show crashing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's why it's so, it's so, uh, such a great show and why comedians yeah. love it because it's so true. Yeah, I mean, were you? Did you ever bark on corners for shows? No, that's New York. Okay, um, so you never had to do that. L.A. didn't do that. Okay, um, not that I know of. Not a whole lot. Not to the degree that New York did. Well, but, New York, um, there's like a comedy club on every corner. So yeah, New York de definitely. That's that was the thing. I don't even know if they do that now, but that was the thing. L.A. It wasn't wasn't like that. So when I got to L.A., I mean, I did I did. Uh, do some couch surfing. I stayed on some friends couches for a while before I got my own place. <laughs> but of course that, that did happen. That's like crashing. Yeah. Well, you said the, the college uh, program and it's funny cause there was several episodes about that, but I actually was on a committee when I went to college at Emporia state university in 93, 94, where we actually picked comedians and they would, we would go to this event and we picked Carrot Top at the time, who was, nobody knew who he was, really, uh, and Margaret Cho. And they were just starting to become, now you and I are, I think, the same age, 45, 46-ish. So, you know, um, but 
I understood that that was a big deal for comics to get picked and they would just route you. To, that was like a summer's worth of work. Yeah. Um, it didn't matter if you had 5,000 or 500 or 50 people. Right. You just you performed, right? They paid you a fee and you just came and did your, <laughs> right. did your job. Really, and that was it. <laughs> that, that was one of the things I loved about doing the college thing. Cause I, honestly me doing the college circuit is what grew me from feature act to headliner. Yeah. Because when I started doing the colleges, you know, I kind of, I kind of lied and told everybody, yes, I'm a headliner. Um, <laughs> okay. Even That's though funny. I had maybe a good 35 minutes, I, I lied and said, yeah, I've got 45 to an hour. And then when you get to the, to the college, you, you discover, well, they, they, they do want you to do at least 45, but they really don't care as long as they have a great 35, 30 minutes and you do a little, you little Q and a with them. So I started, yeah. and that's where I started to develop, um, crowd work, you know, because okay, cause you're really good at that. like out of necessity because I didn't have the full hour material, but I knew like in between jokes, I could take a breather and go like, uh, Oh, look at this guy. Where'd you get that hat or whatever, you know, and just sort of do some crowd work. And I learned how to get pretty decent at that. And that grew me into, to headliner status, you know, like, well, now I've got 45, now it's an hour. And, and the good thing about it, doing that in the college world is like, they're not, they're not really like, they're not like club owners or agents or bookers who are standing in the back of the room that are judging you. Right. They're just 18 year old, 19 year old kids who just want to laugh and hang out with you. Yeah. Yeah. You are really good at crowd work. Ian Bag is another phenomenal person at crowd work. Um, Nate Bargatze. Like, I feel like you're in this category of people who are really good at it, Anthony Jeselnik. And I find that part of what you do even more intriguing because you're able to go through your set, which is very well crafted. You've practiced it. It's very specific and articulate, but you make it look so easy. Uh, <laughs> and you. then you, yeah, well, and that's what I find about what you do. So impressive. But then you see somebody, you know, you made a joke earlier. Oh, it's nice to be in your closet. Like to me, that's kind of like, you know, a little bit of a, a roast. Uh, and, uh, but to just think like that on your feet, uh, is, is pretty cool. Like when I saw Ian, the crowd was very low. Uh, it was just Sacramento on a, it was during the fires. And so not a lot of people wanted to come out and yeah. he just, he did that crowd work thing, but it all just flowed so well. Um, yeah. With, it's a skill that I developed. Uh, it's not, I didn't start out that way. It was something that came over time with being comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it takes a while to get comfortable on stage, even with your own material and, and then having a little confidence to, to be able to stray away from what you wrote and memorized and go out into the, the murky waters of the crowd and figure out how am I going to get back to my jokes? Well, it could turn um, out really bad for scary. you too, right? I mean, if you could almost, is there a fine line between kind of playing around with people and then actually flat out offending somebody? Have you ever had an audience turn on you before because you kind of picked on somebody? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's great. If I go to a comedy club and they do, you, cause I'll go by myself cause my girlfriend doesn't like to do that. Do you want to sit up front? Sure. Why not? You know, and nine times out of 10, you know, it's a very good chance that the comic is going to see <laughs> you. John Mulaney, he just had a heyday with me uh, when my friend's bachelor party. So, I mean, have you ever had anything kind of go south? Sure. Or? 
You use I don't. Phone? Well, I'm. I am not. Uh, I'm happy go lucky. You know. Yeah, I you're. A, fun, yeah, you're a pretty nice guy. I'm. I, yeah, I'm a nice guy. I make fun of myself. I make fun of my family. I make fun of where I'm from. Um, I, I rarely make fun of other people, especially the ones that are have paid to come see me. Um, but if they start it, I will happily go there. <laughs> of so course, of course. For me, it's always been like, well, what's going on? You know, you're this person's talking or not paying attention. Let's let's talk to you. Let's figure it out. And then that's where I developed that. But I don't start it. So I never feel bad if it goes bad because I know I didn't start it. That's a good um, perspective to have. Yeah. So but there are many times where you know, over the course of the 20 some years I've been doing this where shit happens. Um, you know, I, I will say, uh, one time I was doing a casino somewhere in, um, I think Arizona or in Nevada, but, um, I was doing this casino gig and casino gigs are weird because they're not, they're not your audience. They're, they're an audience who, um, maybe stumbled in because, the, the casino felt bad that they lost money and they gave them free tickets or, sure, sure. you know, they're not necessarily invested. The casino doesn't really care. They just, they're just trying to pump out, you know, new free, some entertainment for their guests. But anyway, I remember doing, and they'll let anybody in there. And I oh, remember really? doing a show. Interesting. Um, and I, I had a bit about karaoke and I remember a girl started like, like laughing weird or was making a comment about it. And I kind of looked over at her and I got a good look at her and I noticed the whole crowd was like, Ooh, and I looked at her and I noticed, well, she, you know, she was a special needs person. Oh no! And, and she was there with, you know, like a mother or a sister or something. And, and I looked at her, I'm like, okay, well, I can't really, I can't really say anything because that would be crossing the line. But I can't ignore it either because that makes me look like an amateur. So how do you deal with that? So I kind of just uh, was like, right. You know, I was just sort of like just saying, yes, I was yes anding her to everything. And it, and it sure. was going it was going OK. And then I remember at some point uh, in my act, I was doing a music, a thing to music. And I saw her coming towards the stage. And uh <laughs> Uh, whoever she was with was like, Becky, no, Becky, no. Like they, they had lost her and she was free. And she, <laughs> she came up onto the stage and wanted to sing with me. And, uh, and I, you know, she wasn't, it wasn't a threatening thing. It was just like a child in an adult body who just wanted to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just gave her the microphone and said, yeah, let's sing this song. And she started singing it. And I mean, you know, it was hilarious. And and luckily, I was at, at the end of my set, and okay. I just I just used that as a closer and said thank you, good night. Um, like you I can't. Mean, how talk. do you follow that? Yeah, you I can't know. follow a special needs person doing karaoke. <laughs> no. no, I mean you're talking. I mean there are, are a couple comics in my head that I'm thinking of. I won't say that might have gone a different direction with uh, that situation, but uh, that's great. You know, you've been doing this for a long time, and we've covered a lot, but. I've heard you talk about your time at the comedy store, how you got started there, which to me seems like a badge of honor for a comic to be able to perform there because I imagine when you started there, you had to audition for Misty, right? Who was alive at the time and she passed you. What was that like? At what point in your career was that level of, was this after last comic standing, before last comic standing? Before. 
okay. So you were already a comic. Were you a paid regular there at that point? Before no. You so, went on to- well, no. Well, I got there in 2000 and I hadn't had, I had no TV credits at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got to the comedy store, I had a buddy named Jeff Richards who already worked there. He was yeah. a door guy and he was a comedian. We started around the same time at Good Nights in Raleigh. And so he moved to LA a couple of years before me. And so he already had his foot in the door at the comedy store. So when I moved out there, he said, yeah, come to the comedy store uh, and you know, I'll introduce you to everybody and you can work your way up. And so when I got there, like I said, no TV credits, nothing. I was, I was doing the door. I was like an unpaid regular. You got to work the door. You got to go up and check IDs, you know, at the door, you got to go up whenever someone doesn't show up, you go up at two in the morning, maybe just do five minutes here. Um, and then over time you get an audition for, uh, Mitzi Shore. And, uh, when that happens, you got to make sure you got a friend sitting next to, uh, Mitzi. So she is paying attention to you because people love to come up and just start talking to her because she didn't show up every day. Sure. She would just show up randomly for these big occasions and people would, uh, were all dying to talk to her. So you had to make sure that you had a buddy who was going to tap her on the shoulder when it was your turn to go up and go, Hey, Mitzi, you should watch this guy. And so luckily I had Jeff to do that. When I got up there, I had a good set and uh, she passed me as a paid regular. And then you just start calling in for spots. And uh, that would have been probably 2001, 2002. So you were there during just kind of when the explosion of stand-up comedy because in the 90s, in 80s and whatever, it was television, Carson, Leno. But then Comedy Central kind of, well, I think even before then it was what MTV or VH1, you know, was doing these half hour, 25 minute specials. And then now Comedy Central comes along and they're doing specials. Was it ever, when you were performing, was that kind of something you were working towards to get on one of those things? like you were working out material to get on there and kind of go to the next level before last comic came along. Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, I grew up loving Saturday night live with everybody else. I grew up, I grew up loving the tonight show and all that stuff and always wanted to be a comedian. And so that's, that was the goal. The short term goal is just get on TV and however, whatever capacity you can. Mm -hmm. And so back in the day, in order to do that, you needed to be clean. And so, that's just how I operated. I'm like, well, if I'm clean, I'll have a better shot at getting on TV. Instead of working blue, which... Yeah, which there's nothing wrong with that. I know a lot of that stuff, but just right. for me, I mean, my, my strategy was be clean. It's easier to get on TV if you're clean. Um, but, you know, that's changed, but, but that's how I started. So, yeah, that was the goal. But when I was at the comedy store, I mean, it wasn't like it is now. The comedy store has exploded. Oh, it it's huge. A thousand times better than it was when I was there. I would get, when I was there, you know, it was sort of a, a, a dark time at the comedy store because, you know, they had three rooms. They have a belly room. They got an original room. They got the main room. Mm-hmm. And it was tough to get people in there every night. And they were open every night of the week. And, you know, you'd go there on a Tuesday night at nine o'clock. There'd be three people in there. Uh, a Wednesday night at nine thirty, maybe seven people in there. So it it had its ups and downs, but now it's changed. And I think it's because of they got good marketing and a different company, and they got uh, social media has changed everything. And so now 
that place is sold out. Well, you never know who's going to come. Yeah. Well, even then though, even then, like I I remember seeing Dave Chappelle go up in front of seven people at a comedy store. Mm -hmm. And this was like, you know, Dave Chappelle's huge, but people just weren't aware, didn't care. But now it's changed. It's gotten way better. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It, it sold out many, many times. Of course. Yeah. And now it's every night it's packed. Well, now they do these ticket packages where you can buy a ticket for each room and you can kind of just work your way around the circuit because now they're posting lineups, you know, online, who's coming and when. Wow. So fascinating, John. I just appreciate your honesty and just your candidness about your life. One last topic on comedy, and then I want to wrap up about your podcast, which I love. I, I was rolling over here. (laughs) <laughs> listening to this. My kid woke up in the middle of the night. He's all, dad, why are you laughing? Uh, so great <laughs> podcast, but I want to talk about this topic of, well, I don't know how I, you've not joke stealing, but kind of like mental sort of property rights of jokes and stuff. It's kind of been very popular lately over the last couple of years Again, no no names to mention. We all listening know who we could be referring to, but how how do you prevent that from happening? Like, obviously, there's a premise to a joke, right, mm-hmm. which could be anything, going on a blind date on eHarmony, but how do you take that and prevent it from turning into something else that somebody else has done? I mean, because, like, yeah. everything, you talk a lot about family, your dad, so... That's yeah. very personal to you, but let's say blind dates or I know getting catfish. Like, how do you kind of control the narrative on that to prevent it? Well, there's a couple of ways, really. Like, what what people, what comedians have uh, today that they could, you know, that at their luxury is the internet. You could just, like, for example, not long ago I was sitting in a hotel room and I decided to iron a shirt. And I pulled out an ironing board. And when I opened it, it made this god awful noise. Went, yeah! and I'm like, <laughs> why? Why does that happen every time I'm opening an ironing board? It's like I got it pierces your, your brain. It's the loudest, most horrible noise. And I sat down and started writing a joke about that. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is too easy. Someone's had to have talked about this before. So I just typed in comedian ironing board joke. But but you know I couldn't have done that. 20 years ago no but today if a comedian is really really worried about something like that they can just do the research right um now i don't think you have to but if it's something you're worried about then maybe that's something you should do now i looked up ironing board comedian and it pulled up brian regan yeah and he had one of the funniest bits i've ever seen about an ironing board and i go well of course and i just quit and i never continued the joke and i just left it there now there are a lot of uh, times where I have an original thought and I take it to the stage and it's my thought. It happened to me. And if someone else does it, but it's not exactly the same, it's just sort of a, a linear thought. And I get that. Um, I don't think you got to worry about it. I, I, I think if it's, if you know in your heart, it's your idea and you wrote it, um, then, then screw everybody else. Yeah. Um, but it's also smart if you're worried about it to just look it up and find out. Um, but I didn't have that luxury when I started. And there, like, I got a, one of my first CD is called CD is called John Reap Bless His Heart. 
Mm-hmm. And it's all about how in the South, you know, there's coded language. You know, if someone says, bless your heart, it kind of means go, you know, go screw yourself. Right. Uh, but, you know, and I, I, and, and I just put it on a CD and then years later I find out, well, Henry Cho's got a similar bit. Um, there are other people who have similar bits about bless your heart. We don't care. It's just a common thing. Yeah. So, and it's not the exact same joke. It's just my point of view about that. So everyone can have a point, an opinion, a, a point of view about a certain topic. I think as long as it's not word for word, it's not obvious that you've copied and stole it from someone else, then go for it and don't worry about it too much because you'll just stress yourself out. Yeah. Henry Cho, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah. Uh, what's that clicking sound? You know, what's if you went up, if you yeah. went out and started doing that, what's that clicking noise or, yeah. or get her done? Obviously, right. you know, people would know Larry, the cable guy. Very cool. Well, last, last topic here, your podcast. Let's talk about that for the listeners who haven't heard it. And again, we'll put all of the links to the show in, in our show notes for this episode. Let's kind of just, what, what's the show about kind of what's your angle country ish great title by the way oh thanks so my whole life you know i grew up in hickory north carolina hickory is uh it's got the word hick in it so my whole life i've people have imagined that i'm sort of a country guy um especially with the accent and it's not as thick as it used to be my accent used to be a lot more southern a, a lot more thick mm-hmm. but um but then i moved to la then I'm definitely a redneck to those people because you're from North Carolina. You're from Hickory, North Carolina. <laughs> you sound like this. You look like the kid from Deliverance. They're going to think that, oh, yeah, that's a redneck. But really, I'm not. No, um, not at all. I don't hunt. I don't fish. Uh, I've only been camping when I was a kid and, and the Cub Scouts. I go camping every now and then with my friends. I'm not really country. I'm country-ish. And so this podcast is sort of with that in mind. It's, it's me and my friends from Hickory. Uh, we've got segments. We do a segment called Small Town News. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of podcasts have news segments. Ours is focused on random, weird, small town stories that happen. And <laughs> this one didn't happen in a small town, but it did kind of happen on the way to a small town. In your neck of the woods in Modesto, California, a guy just recently um, jumped out of his car. He was wearing underwear and a COVID mask. That was it. Yeah. He jumped out of his car and he jumped on a, a, a tanker truck full of wine and got underneath it and started drinking the wine. <laughs> so we covered that story. We do one. Um, we cover, uh, we do movie reviews. I do a, a segment called John's Journal. I found my old high school journal uh, and I read it. Here's an entry right here. This is from 1989. Oh boy. A, a typical Friday. And I read it on the show, and I let my friends make fun of me. Um, and we do uh, all kinds of fun segments. It's just a lot of good f- uh, fun with me and my friends from Hickory. Very cool. Well, Mr. John Reap, thank you for hanging out. Where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you and learn more about what you do? And yeah, obviously, you're everywhere, but uh, where can they hunt you down? Best thing to do is just go to johnreap.com, J-O-N-R-E-E-P, johnreap.com. I got links to all my socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, everything. And there's a link to the podcast right there as well, country-ish. Check it out. Well, John, thanks for hanging out with me in my uh, pseudo closet today. I appreciate it. (laughs) Don't worry. This is a closet right here. I just have the door shut. (laughs) 
Okay, very good. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out, man. You're certainly welcome. You have a good weekend. That brings today's episode to an end. Thanks for choosing to stop by and listen. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend and hitting the subscribe button. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Is it all over, Rock? I guess so. Until next time, cheers.